This is Our People Podcast, telling the stories behind South Tyneside and Sunderland NHS Foundation Trust. Hi, and welcome to Our People Podcast. My name is Harry Newhouse. I'm a PR and social media assistant here at Trust, and on today's episode, we will be talking about Black History Month, which in the UK is celebrated throughout October. We will find out why people celebrate Black History Month, what the Trust does to support our black patients and colleagues, plus much more. With me today to talk about this is Vice Chair and Non-Executive Director Ngozi Lincoln and Lee Chaplin, Reverend Remy Amoli. Welcome to the podcast, Ngozi and Remy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. Uh, Ngozi, uh, please could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role here at the Trust? Great. So um, I'm currently a vice chair of our trust and non-executive director here at the trust. So this means as part of the board, ensuring that we realize our vision of providing excellence in all that we do, both for our staff and for our patients. I also hold a number of roles uh, in the trust that are relevant to this. One is uh, the wellbeing champion. So my role is very much about making sure that our uh, staff uh, feel good, feel a good sense of belonging, are happy and healthy because you need happy and healthy staff to be able to realise your vision. So I hold a number of roles but um, uh, for me it's a real pleasure and privilege to be part of this trust and I'm absolutely delighted with all of the work that our staff do to support our patients. Perfect and um, so this episode is part of our big health and wellbeing team talk campaign. Um, as you mentioned there, you're you're involved with the uh, you're the chair of wellbeing. Uh, what's involved with that, and how did you get into it? Okay, I wouldn't say chair of wellbeing. <laughs> so non as non executive directors, we hold a number of different roles and responsibilities. So that means uh, on behalf of the board, I work with the not with the executive directors, Kath Griffin, in, in this particular case to make sure that the board is assured that the well-being of our staff are um, being taken very, very seriously. So it links to our values of compassion, um, teamwork, honesty, respect, especially respect. So if we're protecting well, uh, the well-being of our staff, if we're making sure they're happy and healthy, if we're making sure they're not subject to abuse, which some of our staff are, then we can make sure that our staff do feel respected. So that role is very much working with CAF and the team, that include uh, Philippa Poole and Jake Higgins, to understand what we're doing about the well-being of our staff. Ask the right questions to help us explore it a little bit more and test that the activities that we're doing are very much what our staff need. And Remy, please could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role here? Okay, thank you. I joined the Trust in 2014. Uh, but I took on my current role as lead chaplain just over a year ago. And from a chaplaincy perspective, we have that strong conviction that people's spirituality or religion or faith has an impact on their well-being and on their health. And what we try to do is to try and make sure that's held uh, within the whole healthcare agenda, that people, staff, families are conscious of the impact of people's faith on their well-being. But not only that, 
We also offer a lot of emotional support to patients, uh, their families and staff, which has been really evident, especially both prior to COVID, in the COVID period, and more, most especially now, when we're trying to actually kind of exit the COVID period. So we offer a lot of support to people. And that, in a nutshell, is really what we do. Yeah. And uh, you're also co-chair of uh, the BAME Staff uh, Network. Yes. Uh, what is the BAME Staff Network? A again, this is a specific area of focus. Now, the Trust has a lot of staff who are non-local, who are foreign, and they constitute a great majority within the Trust. But then leaving one country, coming to the UK, there's a lot of things around support, around culture change and a host of other things. And the network really is there to offer support, to offer guidance, but in many ways, be a home away from home. Because what we're not encouraging is for people to ditch who they are. We actually want them to bring in who they are but support them in a totally different environment. And in essence, that's what we as a network do. And we just have a presence with not, not only people who class themselves as ethnic minorities, but even people who describe themselves as indigenous people in terms of how we can make people more aware of what we experience and the experiences of, of others. And how can staff get involved with the main staff network? I think mainly the information is on the intranet. A key person is Philippa Poole and Jake Higgins, who Ngozi mentioned earlier on. And their details are all on the website and on the intranet. And I highlight this especially for new members of staff who may not necessarily be aware to make themselves known so that we can get them registered and offer them support. So we're here today to talk about Black History Month. Um, first of all, uh, what is Black History Month and why do we celebrate this occasion? Okay, well, I'll chip it by a bit <laughs> of what I can. Absolutely. I, I mean, historically, you know, a lot of the focus has been on America. So if you go back to maybe, say, 1915, thereabouts, that's where it really started, where people got together and started saying to themselves, we need to actually celebrate the role of African-American people in development of our society. And that over time developed and grew. So in America, if I understand it right, it actually happens in February. February, that's right. Uh, and in here is actually we do it in October. But for me, regardless of when it is, let's focus on it, let's celebrate it, let's mark it. And I think the month of October, what it does for us, it allows us to pause and focus on those issues that impact on all ethnic minorities. Now that could be good and it could be bad, but it allows us to just stop and focus on it. And the whole idea of this is for us to recognize the contributions that diversity brings in to the workplace. And the NHS is a living example of that. 
I'd agree with that, yes. I, I wish we didn't need a Black History mm. Month, but unfortunately we do. And that's because the contribution of black people has not been recognised. It's not taught in schools, it's not recognised in terms of society, the National Portraits Gallery, wherever it is, you just don't see very visibly the contributions that black people have made to community over the centuries. And that is the big gap. So you kind of have little black children not able to see people like themselves, not able to understand the contribution that they have made. So it's fairly recent, though it's been around since, as you mentioned. It wasn't until 1976 that the US put in a Black History Month, and it wasn't until 1987 that the UK did. You know, so this um, uh, um, has not been around for that long. But the more we integrate the understanding of Black history into everything that we do, the more people feel included, the more our society as a whole benefits, because we all do better when we recognise the history, the diversity and the culture of all of the different communities that make up today's society. Brilliant. And um, as a trust, are we doing anything to celebrate this or have we done anything to celebrate it? I think from my perspective, uh, rather than what we've done, I like to see what will we do, you know, because there's a lot of effort in raising consciousness and I think it's really important how do we integrate that into, you know, not only our health care, but I think there's a relational thing, you know, about this. And it's beginning to really be intentional and proactive in beginning to say what can we really do that leaves a longer lasting legacy rather than an activity that happens in the month of Black History Month, and then we forget about it. We come back to it next year. I would like us to be doing things that um, on a monthly basis that we're integrating it and we're conscious of it. So for example, does the reporting procedure support when someone you know feels they've you know been racially abused or being treated differently on the basis of their race you know or their color and so there's something about our systems and another thing i want to add the importance of self-auditing so from a management level right at the top how do we self-audit ourselves to make sure the trust is living out well-being, because well-being isn't only about me being well physically, but there's also the emotional bit of it. And having experienced racism is a very wounding experience, you know, emotionally. Uh, and that can really impact on people. So the trust needs to consistently self-audit, you know, are we doing things that are actually meeting the needs of our staff? who are actually the key resource and who can deliver much more if they're looked after. I do agree with that. So I think there's something about celebrating Black History Month and maybe the staff network can yeah. think about what it wants to do. But for me, it's much more important to have inclusion mm. all the way yes, through. That's true. As we know, people who experience racism, research has shown that 
this impacts on both their mental and physical um, health. So we need to be mindful of the harm that we do and how we uncover that. But for me, it's the everyday inclusion. So I have the pleasure of um, working with a woman called Stephanie Duce. So she's Chief Executive Officer of St. Oswald's Hospice. But she now runs a, a, a network called Black All Year because she was tired of Black History Month and being invited to Black History Month activities. Like, what's happening? I'm still black in January and February and March. It's not in October. So for me, I totally agree with Remy. We need to be thinking as a trust. How do we make sure we're including everybody all the way through? How do we make sure we're challenging discrimination? So we have a role as a board, as a trust, to make sure that there are mechanisms for people to challenge. But I think everybody who works for the trust should also be challenging. So if you hear something that is discriminatory, something that is unkind, it doesn't even have to be discriminatory, or something that really hurts somebody, how do you challenge that? So we can all be allies for one another. So we're talking about black history, but there are other needs, be it around gender, be it around people's sexuality, just be it around the way people speak and the way that they engage, that actually, if we're going to be inclusive, then we need to be mindful of all of those different needs and make it day to day, how can we make sure that we all have a sense of belonging? For me, that's really important, yeah. the day-to-day. Now, okay, we'll do it in October, but come November, we'll revert okay. to whatever we were doing before. We don't need to do it anymore. And I think that's important because Black History Month shouldn't take away all forms of discrimination mm-hmm. uh, because sometimes that can happen. And as a chaplaincy, a lot of staff come to us. They tell us of their experiences, which we feel shouldn't be happening. You know, and I think it's really important to, it needs to be across the board and all forms of discrimination with a support backup to those members of staff. How does the trust remove barriers for black patients and colleagues? I've, I've always said when I talk around racism, discrimination, I always say the first person to confront is the self. That's the first people we need to confront, our own selves Mm -hmm. as individuals. Because when we confront ourselves as individuals, we then can confront the other aspects of it. And so first and foremost, the trust needs to kind of look at what's going on, how has it been dealing with things, do that self-audit and confront the self. When we then confront the self, we can make that live in our everyday existence. Because at the end of the day, why should I think a patient is black or white? No, they're a patient, they're individuals. So I shouldn't even be thinking of colour. But sadly, again, as individuals, we do have those biases. I begin to think of who is what or who is who. It's a patient, and to bring in my Latin here, patient means the suffering one. We're all suffering people. Let's look at each other as human beings, and not because you're black, white, or where you come from. So confronting the self, for me, is a key thing here. I do agree with that, because we all carry biases as part of human nature. It's not necessarily good or bad. Mm. 
But our biases can lead us to make assumptions that mm. might lead us to then discriminate against people. So whilst we're seeing the patient as a whole, it's recognizing that some people have particular needs, be it around exactly. interpretation, uh, sorry, interpreting, or um, for example, what they eat and mm. so on. So kind of recognizing people's differences, mm. but making sure that actually we're delivering a service that's inclusive. But I also want to talk about what we see as a board in terms of removing barriers. So as you know, the NHS publishes the Workforce Race Equality Standard results. So Kath Griffin and her team brings this to board mm -hmm. and they show us how the trust is doing, for example, around bullying, harassment, people's experiences of discrimination. And there's an action plan attached to that about the different actions that the trust will take to address those results. The Staff Network's been an example mm -hmm. of a great safe space for people to go and interact and be inclusive. But also we have things like a bullying and harassment policy, a grievance policy, and other mechanisms that people can use to um, um, address issues that they feel have not necessarily been addressed. But I think often the policies should be the last resort. If somebody experiences something, they should be able to talk to somebody. And I would say, if in doubt, go and speak to Philippa Poole and Jake mm -hmm. Higgin mm -hmm. or Kath Griffin herself, uh, all myself. Kath, Kath works in HR. She does, uh, yes, yes. Kath, Kath is executive director um, for HR people. I think that's her job title. I need to check. <laughs> but yes, but I'm absolutely open and willing to speak to people. And it's not just Kath, actually. It's all of the other executive directors. They uh, have certainly um, expressed their commitment to this work and they'd be very happy for anybody to go and speak to them if they have issues. As this is a big health and wellbeing team talk special episode, um, I just want to touch on mental health and the impact racism can have on somebody's mental health. Well, one of the things I'll say is one of the things about especially when it comes to mental health. A lot of it is around people's lived experiences. So someone isn't just born and then all of a sudden, you know, suffers mental health. There's a lived experience that people go through. Sadly, that's reinforced by people around them or at times people they live with. And then people start developing a strong sense of self. There's that aspect, but then sometimes we spoke about with the different biases we have, without even having any form of mental health, people are already stigmatized because of where they come from, how they look, how they behave. That can actually start causing people, you know, to start going into having mental health crisis because they don't quote unquote fit with other people's expectations. And that's what I always say, there are different levels, but more importantly, people's lived experiences can lead them uh, to, to a mental health crisis. And that's why in the chaplaincy, we're very keen to support people. I have a background as a therapist, so I know that's important. I take things like supervision very seriously 
because a lot of what I see happening, there hasn't been the space for staff to confidentially say it to someone that, look, this is what I'm going through. A lot of staff can't go to people they feel they should trust. And so they look for other people or suffer in silence or go into addiction. And these are all things that can lead to people, you know, having mental health. That then leads to the impact family breakdown. If they've got children, what happens to the children? But then at the end of it, there's no intervention. It's the label. And so people start living with those labels. And having worked with young people in the youth offending service, I felt a lot of them have confirmed what people are saying about them. So they live it out. If someone says to them they're whatever, they say, well, okay, I will then live that out to prove that's what I am. So there's a, there are different levels of tears. It's just a whole combination of things in terms of not only how people end up in mental health, but the impact it has on them and people around them. Yes, sadly, and racism does continue to cause serious, serious harm. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to draw on two pieces of research, one by a group called the Black Equity Organization. It's a report called Being Black in Britain 2022, so it's so recent. And that study found that 65% of black people have been discriminated against by healthcare professionals because of their ethnicity. And it was also in NHS providers um, health news just last week showing that cancer diagnosis is twice as likely to be slow for people from ethnic minority groups than their white counterparts. So there's all sorts of discrimination going on. And then recent research by MIND, the mental health body, found links between racism and anxiety disorders and depression also psychosis and suicidal feelings. So as Romy has uh, just said, if you're experiencing all of this stuff day in, day out, and worryingly, starting at a very young age, then you're carrying all of this baggage as an adult. And if the cycle isn't broken, if we're not supporting and helping people, then they go into serious, higher level mental health problems that then mean they can't function effectively, either as our staff or as our patients. So we've got a duty of care, really, to make sure that we have a zero tolerance against racism, that we challenge racism when it um, happens on our own shores. And we do everything we can, both as individuals, as a trust, to go, no, we don't tolerate this. We're here to help people, to support them, uh, and we're not here to cause them harm. So that's something I think is really important for us as a trust. And uh, how, how does a trust uh, support anyone who's been subject to any racism or any abuse? So we would use our policies and procedures, first of all, to make sure that um, um, matters that are reported are investigated and are seriously addressed. That's one. I think the support bit, the prevention bit, is actually more important for me. So things like the staff network where people can go and feel safe, share their thoughts and ideas. 
things like the work that Philip Poole and Jake Higgins were name-checking them a lot <laughs> on this, <laughs> because they do really important work, and uh, uh, I'm so grateful for them. We all are as a board on the work they do. But there are lots of training and learning sessions around allyship, which is really important. So how can we be allies to people who are different from us? But also things like inclusion. What does inclusion mean? Things like microaggressions. I don't actually like the word microaggressions because micro means small, and these are not small stuff if you're experiencing them day in, day out, but also being aware of, of these issues so that we can do something about it. Things like induction, for example, for newer staff, especially those who are coming from abroad, and all of the support that we put in place to ensure that we don't hit those problems in the first place, but that if we do, people can feel confident that we will handle them very seriously. Yeah. I'd, I'd just like to mention if anybody, if any of this is, listeners are uh, interested in finding out what uh, Jake and Philippa do, uh, we have got an episode out uh, where they explain what their job is within the, um, is it, oh, sorry, it's the EDI, so it's yes, that's right. Diversity. Equity, diversity, uh, and inclusion. So we're moving away from equality because mm-hmm. equality suggests that if you treat people the same, mm-hmm. it's fine. But we don't, mm-hmm. because some people just need a greater helping hand. I mean, a very basic example. If you don't have English as a first language and somebody gives you really complex reports with lots of text, lots of technical terms, you're not going to understand it as well as somebody who does have English as a first language. Mm-hmm. So you might need to look at you know, translation if you need. You might need to look at... Uh, um, more simple texts that can enable people. So I guess equity, in a very simple example, I haven't expressed it well, is about giving everybody the support they need so that they can engage on a more level playing field. And, and, I, and I just think the whole area of equity and inclusion is not too... I'm hoping that that whole agenda won't be seen as an add-on mm. because... I think not only in you know various organizations, but in a lot of organizations, it's an add-on. It's got to be seen as the key of everything, you know. So when anyone comes into an organization, I don't have to think about treating them, you know, equitably. I don't should it should become as a natural thing. And the baseline should be that you're a human being. You know, I don't I don't need a degree in maths to think that you're a human being how can I relate to you based on who you are mm-hmm. not what I think you should be but there's something about all a lot of organizations mm-hmm. it's an add-on mm-hmm. we'll do things around equity as an add-on mm-hmm. um, I kind of you know struggle with that it should be a key part and parcel of everything that goes on mm-hmm. yeah And I think the I in inclusion in particular is about this sense of belonging. Mm. So people need to come into our premises as a trust feeling that they belong if they're members of staff. Mm. And how do we create it so that there are no mismatches between what we say as a trust around inclusion and what people actually experience. So how does it become part of everyone's DNA? 
So you're thinking, this is not just to do with race, it's to do with disabilities, to do with people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, etc. How do we look at people and see their story, their complete story, not the assumptions we make about them and the stereotypes that we want to reinforce? So for me, is that creating a culture of belonging and inclusion where everybody can thrive. And that's the only way we can achieve our own mission in terms of excellence in everything that we do. If a member of staff is listening to this and has experienced uh, racism or prejudice um, of any kind, where can they go for support? Mm -hmm. And as a chaplaincy, we're all open you know, for people to come to us, knock on our door. If, you know, we're busy, we'll actually make an appointment and we're actually available seven days a week so people can actually come in and see us. If we can't deal with what they bring, we will identify someone they can go to again, Philippa, you know, and Jake are also around, or someone from the network because the advantage of a, the network is there are people who have different skill sets and who are able to support people who have specific issues. So that's on a broad base. And Ngozi mentioned the policy. So there's a system in place, a reporting and recording procedure that exists that they can also, you know, complete what's necessary there. So there's something about responsibility also to make sure those things are in the system to then be addressed. Because sadly, if it's not put in the pot, it can't be addressed. And sometimes, and I know from what I've heard, people struggle with putting things based on the system because it should go beyond the system. You know, but sometimes we've got to use systems to work for us in terms of doing what we need to do. And then hopefully the system procedures can take can take course of action. Yeah. And may I just use this opportunity to thank Remy and the chaplaincy for the work you do thank because you. it's absolutely brilliant mm -hmm. that people feel that they can receive that degree of emotional support that they might need, both for staff and our patients, because the mind and body connection is so strong. Mm. And everything we've just said about health plays into that's that brilliant. work. So that's brilliant. But I also want to recognize the, the idea of psychological safety. So often people who experience racism and other negative isms, the policy is the last thing they want to use because they don't feel safe, that it'll, they'll be taken seriously, that it'll be investigated well, etc. And the temptation is to go, well, I'll not say anything. I'll just carry on as I am. So you can imagine the mental uh, load that that places on people. So I would say, obviously, the policies and procedures are there, they're good. But you can also speak to your line manager, and if you don't feel able to, speak to their line manager, speak to the executive directors, speak to members of the board, speak to whoever you need to speak to if the mechanisms that we have just outlined are not there. But the thing I would really encourage people not to do is not to say anything mm. and hope it will go away because if we don't know then we can't do anything mm. about it and I would hate to be associated with a trust where people are feeling oh my goodness I can't say anything yeah. because I don't know that they will listen because that is so against everything 
that's what I'm about. Um, so Remy, uh, you have recently won an award for your anti-racism work you have done here at the Trust uh, and also within the communities. Um, how did you achieve this? I think the genesis, many, many years ago, I was part of what was then the Darlington and Durham Racial Equality Council. Uh, that, you know, took a different direction, but the then chair, uh, Pat Poynan, you know, contacted me a while back to say that, you know, there's an organisation which is the northeast of England, African Community Association, which I, I had never heard of, and they invited me to an event. Uh, so I attended that event, and then the award was given to me. So I, I went there cold, uh, but it was in recognition of my contribution to community cohesion and promoting anti-racism. And so that's been the work that I've been doing. Uh, but also, it was a real honour for me, uh, for the first mayor, you know, of Newcastle to present it, Habib Rahman, uh, but also Shaka Hislop was also there, uh, the former Newcastle United goalkeeper, who currently chairs show races in the red card. So it was really nice to be recognised, but uh, I didn't think I'll ever get an award, and whether I do or don't, my reward is being able to do this work uh, that we're able to do, whether however little, you know, however much, it's about planting the seeds. And that, that African Community Association was set up to, again, support people, you know, going through discrimination, racism. And so that's how I kind of, you know, got involved. <laughs> yeah, congratulations, Remy. That's, that's fantastic news. What was the award called? Right, well, I've got the certificate here. It's a Certificate of Appreciation Community Award Certificate, and it's in recognition and appreciation of your contribution to community cohesion and promoting anti-racism in the UK. Brilliant. Well done. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. And, um, Finally, uh, Black History Month is about remembering important black uh, public figures and events. Has there been a person that has inspired you throughout your life, and if so, who? I, I think there are several, but one that stands out, it's more around, rather than individual, maybe the legacies they leave, or the words they leave, and there's someone who, who, who's now died, Ralph Ellison, you know, who's an author, and he wrote a book, The Invisible Man. And one statement that stood out for me was part of his quotation, which ended is, realizing that I'm no one but myself. I'm no one but myself. You know, and that's, I mean, it's the longer quotation, but that just stood out at me. And I appreciate that, to know that you're yourself, and goes is herself, and I'm myself. But the things around racism, discrimination, to others, you're not. You should be who they expect you to be, you know, rather than who you are. And that's why that quotation and Ralph Ellison is really important to me. And I can be so many others, but... Those are words that I reflect on, probably on a daily basis, yeah. 
And for me, there are lots of public fig figures, people like Mary Seacole, we know her um, well, people like Diane Abbott, who was the very first black MP, people like Baroness uh, Doreen Lawrence, the mother of Stephen Lawrence, who continues to do work. But actually, for me, it's about the less well-known less well people, people like Una Marson, who was the very first black um, journalist employed by the BBC, in 1941, who was a trailblazer that you will not actually hear about. I think um, Sir Leonard Henry has just done a documentary about her, which is fascinating. But also people like Arthur Walton, who was a very good black footballer, who was one of the very first to become professional, who, due to racism, didn't get to play for England and all of these things. So there are people like that. But for me, also real people, people mm. like Remy, people that do lots of important work on the ground now to kind of create a better future for our children, our grandchildren, and society as a whole, to kind of encourage us to be our best, mm. to do our best, so that we can thrive. And that reminds me of a quote by Maya Angelou. I might misquote it, but something like, do your best until you know better, and then do better. Mm. So this is a learning process for us all, and the That's more true. we learn, the better yeah. we do, yeah. so that we can create an even better future for all of us. And, and I definitely echo that, that we're all learning. Mm. You know, we're not saying we've got it. You know, we're, we're all part and parcel of learning. Mm. Yeah, I definitely echo that, yeah. And then... Um, that brings us to the end of today's episode. And thank you very much, Ngozi and Rui, for joining me today. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Our People Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and check out our other stories. Hit subscribe to keep up with the latest and catch up with what we've been up to on our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Just search for our name.